in 1619. Twenty and odd Negroes arrived in the English settlement we now call Virginia. Abducted, brutalized, enslaved, and transported, they were brought to the New World from their homeland of Angola, or at least that's what we renamed it. Lost forever are their native names, language, customs, and religion. What we know is Captain William Tucker took two of them, a man and a woman, into his household, renamed them, and allowed them to marry. So, Isabella and Anthony gave birth to William, the first recorded black child born in what would become the United States of America. William was baptized as an Anglican in 1624. This year in the United States and in the Episcopal Church, some will mark the 400th anniversary of the arrival of William's parents, their fellow travelers, and subsequent generations of Africans that were taken, broke, and distributed to the Americas and to the Caribbean. There is no consensus in the nation or in the church about acknowledging or marking this anniversary. Marking individual or communal participation in and benefit from past evils are rarely acknowledged or accepted. Individuals and communities regularly dodge realities in at least two ways, euphemism or denial. When it comes to Africans transported and enslaved in America, the nation and the church has employed both strategies. This is why tonight is important, to break this cycle. With the coming ashore of those first few people and William's birth and baptism was begun a wildly iterating economic, legal, political, psychological, and theological system. A system begun and enlarged for the sole purpose of creating capital to found and maintain a colony and then a nation. These are the facts of the case. As one author has put it, nearly everything that has made America exceptional grew out of slavery. This is no overstatement. Still, we avoid this inconvenient truth as individuals and stewards of institutions because, well, because it threatens our national mythology. Etched on monuments, sung as political and religious hymnody, and penned in soaring rhetoric of our in the soaring rhetoric of our founding documents. What butchery did Thomas Jefferson do to his own conscience as he poetically spoke of freedom and liberty by day but slept in the arms of an enslaved African woman each night? If you go to the Jefferson Memorial, even right now, you will see on the third panel of that wonderful monument, Jefferson's oblique confession and the dread that haunted him. Quote, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. End quote. What further complicates this anniversary is the long-standing role of the Anglican Church in slavery. Hello. In the year William was baptized, 1624, the Bishop of London wrote, 
Christianity is so far from discharging men from the duties of the station and condition in which it found them. Rather, it lays upon them a stronger obligation to perform those duties, so says the Bishop of London. One wonders, given his statement, if the Bishop of London had ever read the book of Exodus and God's seeming clear bias for the enslaved Hebrews and the defeat of Pharaoh. Closer to home, those deformed ideas are etched into the founding DNA of our own institutions of higher learning. For example, the cornerstone of the University of the South, popularly known as Swanee, was laid in October, was laid in October 10, 1860, with the following words. The gravest mission ever entrusted to man is that of redeeming Christianity through the portholes of slavery, an inferior, subject, dependent, and necessary race on which his whole order of civilization is based. Civil war not about slavery? Spare me. What is popular to say when faced with this kind of archival documentation is simply that those were those times and that was the thinking then. We recently heard Senate Majority Leader McConnell virtually utter those exact same words, just recently. But we should remember, when it comes to the apparatus of the development of white supremacy as a theology, economy, sociology, and psychology, It is naive to underestimate its malignancy in our country, culture, and even our own souls as we breathe the air. William Faulkner's popular quote is applicable and poignant here. Tonight, the past is never dead. It's not even past. This is Toni Morrison's point from her essay entitled The Slave Body and the Black Body. She says, what is peculiar peculiar about New World slavery is not its existence, but its conversion into the tenacity of racism. The dishonor associated with having been enslaved does not inevitably doom one's heirs to vilification, demonization, or crucifixion. What sustains these latter is racism. Just this year, Morrison's point was tragically illustrated in an article in the New York Times. The article was about Georgia. And Keith Bo Tharp, a man sentenced to death for the assault and murder of his sister-in-law, right here. Bo had been on death row for 28 years. I have met Bo. I have spoken with Bo. I have worshipped with Bo. I have taken the body and blood to Bo. Bo is an African-American. And death row, if you don't know, is in the state of Georgia. It's physically located in the heart of the diocese in Jackson, Georgia, where we kill people on your behalf. At that time, at the time of Bo's trial, a juror in the case signed an affidavit stating that, an affidavit, stating that there are two kinds of people, quote, good ones and niggers. That same juror went on to wonder out loud 
if black people, quote, even have souls, close quote. Look, the point here is that this juror and many other citizens of our country have been successfully formed, either consciously or unconsciously, by a country, culture, and even a church to understand that those of African descent are inferior spiritually and otherwise. That's the point. Bo's guilt or innocence in committing a crime should have been the focus of the juror, not wondering if the race of the people that he belongs to are endowed by their creator with a soul. How did the juror even get to that trajectory of speculation? Have we interrogated our own formation and speculations? How many more bows have suffered because of juries, not of their peers, that harbor and act on these same, same kind of speculations? To remember Isabella Anthony and their arrival of 400 years ago is to begin to understand that some of God's children systematically stripped away and justified the abuse and diminishing of some of God's other children. And that the residue of that theft of labor and personhood lives on and is experiencing a resurgence today, breaking news. There is a safe harbor being given to hate with speeches from pulpits and presidential podiums alike these days. And safe harbor for hate is being provided by adoring crowds looking for relief from the difficulty and insecurity of modern life by accepting and amplifying ignorance dressed up as national pride. This new boldness around this old tragic creed is one part historical, as I've said, but one part futuristic. What I'm saying is, is this. Hate, xenophobia, voter suppression, mass incarceration and the militarism of local policing is increasing because white live births are down and black and brown live births are up in America. Watch the numbers, folks. Still, even given that, what propels us forward are, are the two irreducible ideas implicit in all that has been said and sung today. And that is the irreducibility of God and of neighbor. Prim primacy of God and dignity of neighbor are our politics and govern our menu of possible solutions to complex problems. Any other approach grieves the heart of God and corrodes the soul of the perpetrator and the victim. God and neighbor are our politics. The opportunity for all of us now on this 400th anniversary is to pledge ourselves more fully to brave actions and conversations that intentionally acknowledge and address even the most difficult parts of our life together as an American family. One home, one church, one community, one legislative session at a time. I believe that. Now, one more thing. A couple of years ago, a group of folks and I took a pilgrimage to Ghana, West Africa. Millions of Africans came to this country through the slave castles of Cape Coast. So there we were in Ghana, 
retaking the voyage, retracing the steps, reversing the exit through the door of no return. But something happened for me and for others on that trip that has encouraged me. There we were, three of us from that delegation. One of us, the Archbishop of West Africa. His name is Daniel, a man with beautiful jet black skin, shining like gold, and Ashante, the dominant group of that region for centuries. They gained their dominance by capturing other Africans and selling them to Europeans. Sitting beside him was a member of our diocese, a white woman, a South Carolinian, Charlestonian to be exact, a descendant of purchaser of slaves, a direct beneficiary of stolen labor and stolen personhood. Four of every ten Africans that came to this country came through the port of Charleston. On the other side of the table was me, a German, Irish, African-American. And this incredible conversation took place in a very holy place, in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Is that right? Steps were retraced in that conversation. Responsibility was accepted. Listen, the need for any contrived innocence was put to flight. Undefended. Shame was put to shame in that brave conversation. Burdens were lightened. And both agreed as I beheld that what we have is one another. And now, what we have is one another and now. What is necessary on this journey of commemoration, that is the seeing and repenting and repairing, is actually not shame, guilt, or self-flagellation by some, or disorienting rage and retaliation by others, but rather a mutual and inspired courage to interrogate our lives and our institutions for collusion with unjust systems, and then, yes, make appropriate amends. Reconnecting with Isabella, Anthony, and William and their story and their descendants' story provokes lament and hope simultaneously. When I think of them, their force, their life-giving properties, their humanity, their joy, their will, I think that it ought to be enough to forestall the reach of racism's tentacles. Ought to be enough to protect us from its uninformed, uneducated, relentless, toxic touch. Just as the commitment of this community to Jesus' vision of the beloved community ought to be enough. But allow me to let Sister Maya Angelou have the final word in my thoughts. Her words still dance in the imaginations of so many of us who are hoping and working for an America that pleases God. Do you remember what she said? She said, now if you listen closely, I'll tell you what I know. Storm clouds are gathering, 
the wind is going to blow. The race of man is suffering, and I can hear the moan, because nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that is rooted in pain, I rise. I am a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. We here tonight, you and I, with this work, we are the dream and the hope of the slave.